0: You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So I'm going to give you two scenes. Wars and rumors of wars. Charlatan politics, racism, fleeing refugees, a pandemic, abortion, sex trade, an unstable economy, and a persecution of minorities around the globe. Scene one. Scene two wars and rumors of wars, world leaders feuding, a charlatan emperor, predatory lending, homeless refugees, racial profiling, infanticide, slave trade, and the persecution of minorities. So two lists separated by 2,000 years. Is there anything that is distinguishable from then until now? One can be described as 2023, the other AD 30. Some of the window dressing has changed in our world, but what is in the store remains the same. The human condition just as broken, the disease just as rampant, the system, symptoms just as strong. The world that God was born into is our world. One of the problems with Americana Christmas is its sentimentality. Songs, traditions, (coughs) feelings about being home for Christmas and loads of stuff take center stage. And it all gets wrapped up in one big commercial of sentimentality. Advent is anything but sentimental. It is the inbreaking of God into a world of destructing chaos. And God busting into our world breaks apart anything we would expect the God of the cosmos to be like, including his arrival. So as we enter the season of Advent, I want to break down the unexpected Jesus by talking about his unexpected entrance. And then I want to talk about our practice. So the entrance of God in the world can be described in four ways. Slow, scandal, familiar, and significant. So we will start with slow. Nothing about God's arrival had anything to do with speed or efficiency. The one page that separates Malachi from Matthew is 400 years. 400 years of silence. 400 years of waiting for God to speak. 400 years of wondering if anything God had actually said the previous 400 years, holds any weight. And the people of God had seen it all. They experienced the wilderness and they experienced the promised land. They experienced peace and they experienced violence. They've been taken over by neighboring nations. They've been scattered about the various empires of the world. And they've seen and heard and experienced the very presence of God in freedom from Egypt, in the tabernacle, in creation, and through the prophets. But as they scattered about, there was Silence. Which makes the first paragraph of Matthew all the more unique. If you ever start your Bible reading plan and you start on the first page of the New Testament, typically, typically you skip the first paragraph of Matthew. Because it is just a genealogy. His name after name, after name, after name. It represents generations. It's like a slow buildup. And there are so many reasons why the first chapter of Matthew is important. But let me give you one. It is a reminder that our timing is not God's. That our expectation is that God acts on my watch according to my wishes at the time I ask for him to answer me and that he would use people that I pick to accomplish his Plan. But Matthew 1 points us all the way back to Genesis 3, where God tells Adam and Eve that he will work out redemption through the seed of the woman. And what I am sure Eve thought of as her firstborn son, God had a much more expansive plan that would get wrung out through the rings of the family tree. And if you read the Old Testament, you can see this tree building up and out. But even over the years of waiting for a Messiah, people lost hope. Generations actually lost hope. And as a result, they suffered judgment. Prophets went silent. The temple was desecrated. People scattered. Their homeland was ruined. And Isaiah 611 describes the scene like this. Cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. And the land is ruined and desolate. So if Matthew 1 is this giant genealogy going back to Adam, it's quite frankly a picture of dashed dreams and separated families and decimated lives. And honestly, for the majority of Israel, all hope was actually lost. But there would remain a remnant, a small minority of folks hanging on by a thread. Despite all the loss and all the strain and all the devastation, there still lies the seed of hope. And that holy seed is the stump of the tree a shoot? Isaiah 11 says, will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. The story of Advent is this the tree is not dead. It never died. Hannah Anderson says it like this, The quiet, steady work that came before us will continue on after us. The quiet, steady work we do today, even if it's as simple as celebrating the promised son during this season, will echo through the years until one day we find ourselves gathered together with all those who have hoped in him, with all who have found him faithful from generation to generation. Do we even think like that? From generation to generation. Because here is our strategy. Blow it up on your newsfeed, on social, get the word out. Speed, scale, people of significance and importance. These are the metrics for breaking news and important announcements. But God's arrival into the world was anything but headline making. Slow, deliberate, nearly invisible, like the rings of an old oak tree thousands of years in the making, watered, weathered, and rooted, in a word, slow. And the comparisons and the metaphors that Jesus uses throughout his ministry come from the fact that God has one speed, slow. Mustard seeds and yeast and the planting of trees and the investment of resources have nothing to do with speed and efficiency and everything to do with slow and invisible. His entrance foreshadows his life. He is not interested in you getting the headlines. He's determined to dig the deepest roots in you so that you would be formed over a lifetime, potentially over generations. Sin has hardwired stubbornness into us. And so God meets us with grace through time, slow. The aspect, that aspect of the heart of God, that he would act in such a slow manner is an affront to the currency of our day. The Japanese theologian Kazuki Koyoma says the only way you will catch up to God is if you slow down to three miles an hour. That is the speed that Jesus moved his entire life. Koyoma calls it the speed of God three miles an hour. American Christmas tells us to speed up, run to your gatherings, gather your belongings. Attend as many parties as you can. Eat, drink, and be merry. Store up, consume, for tomorrow we die. That is the message of American Christmas. The speed of Advent is slow. Generations, the pace of Advent is slow. Breath. The currency of Advent literally means waiting, longing, yearning, growing expectation, not a speedy endeavor. What would it look like to move at the speed of God? Second is scandal. Speaking of generations, if you know the story and the stories of the Old Testament, it is a utterly astounding who is chosen to be in the family line. The story of God begins with Abraham begetting Isaac, but there's no mention of the deserving elder son, Ishmael. Isaac then begets Jacob, not a word about Esau, whose birthright Jacob literally stole from him. Jacob then begets Judah. And why is Judah chosen to be in the line and not the exemplar Joseph? Maybe, maybe it's because perhaps God selects Judahs who sell their brother in, sell their brothers into slavery and Jacobs who cheat their way into first place. And David's who steal men's wives and have their husbands murdered. Maybe God selects those people to say something about himself. Then there are five women mentioned in the genealogy, something extraordinarily rare in Jewish writing, not to mention who the women actually are who are included in the line. There is no mention of Sarah, there is no mention of Rebecca, there is no mention of Rachel the great wives of Israel. Instead, there is Tamar, a Canaanite who disguised herself as a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law Judah to get a son out of him. And Rahab, who was actually a prostitute. And Ruth, the Moabite, who was not an Israelite. And Bathsheba is only named as the, quote, wife of Uriah, whom David killed so he could marry her himself. Matthew's genealogy proves that God does not use ideal people in ideal situations to accomplish his ideal outcomes. He uses traitors and sex workers and marginalized and misunderstood people to accomplish his perfect will. His family of origin is littered with moral disaster. And then there is Mary. Now, in our world, unwed teen pregnancies happen often. And so this story loses some of its punch. But in a tight-knit Jewish community in the first century, this would not have been welcome news. So Joseph agrees to divorce Mary in private rather than press charges until an angel shows up to correct his perception of betrayal. So Mary runs off to the one person who could understand what she was going through, her aunt, Elizabeth, who also got miraculously pregnant in old age. Now, I want you to see the contrast. Elizabeth's womb, which was functionally barren, has been healed, and she's about to give birth, and it's the talk of the town. And Mary's womb has also experienced a miracle, and the healing of the world resides in her womb, and she must hide the shame. Folks, God was not born in honorary circumstances, It actually would have made more sense if God had been born to Elizabeth. Because in a few months, the birth of John the Baptist would take place amidst great fanfare, complete with midwives, doting relatives, and the village chorus walking the streets celebrating the birth of a Jewish male. Six months later, Jesus was born far from home with no midwife, no extended family, or village chorus present. Just nine months of awkward explanations and the lingering scent of a scandal. It seems to me that God arranged the most humiliating of circumstances possible for his entrance so to avoid the charge of favoritism. Isn't it impressive that when the Son of God became a human being, he played by the rules, the harsh rules. Rules like small towns don't treat young boys particularly well who grow up with questionable paternity. Nothing has changed, by the way. Malcolm Muggeridge observed that in our day, with family planning clinics offering convenient ways to correct mistakes, that might disgrace a family name, it is extremely improbable under existing or modern day conditions that Jesus would have been permitted to be born at all. Mary's pregnancy in poor circumstances and with the father unknown would have been an obvious case for an abortion. And her talk of having conceived as a result of the intervention of the Holy Spirit would have pointed her to the need for psychiatric treatment and made the case for terminating her pregnancy even stronger. Thus, our generation, needing a Savior more, perhaps, than any that has ever existed, would be too humane to allow one to be born. There is nothing glamorous or ideal about God's entrance into the world. But isn't that maybe one of the most hopeful messages we receive from God? That he was not born in the middle of unbelievable circumstances, but in fact very believable ones. We expect the Son of God to come in the cleanest of environments, physical, social, and relational. But he does not absolve himself from our environments He steps into them because that's where we are. And since he has come for us, he's willing to get in the dirt. The entrance of God did not come without serious accusations and questions. And yet it was God's choice to whom he would come. It was his choice to the conditions of how he would come and to the questions he had to know would come. And he did not budge. And there is familiar And when we read the story of the Incarnation, what's striking is not how grandiose it is, but how it's so common, so familiar. Consider first his birth. It is a super simple, matter-of-fact line. But in Luke 2, it reads, While they, Mary and Joseph, were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. There is something all too familiar and quite frankly all too painful about this very mundane and somewhat traumatizing sentence. Mary gave birth. When an angel appeared to Mary, she says, I am the Lord's servant, may it be according to your word." She agreed to a process that in an earthly sense had absolutely no guaranteed outcome. And this is still a threat today, by the way, but for most of history, death was a constant companion to birth. It did not care about class, ethnicity, education, or social status. When we read in Genesis 3 that because the fall, the work of the ground will be futile, it also reads the childbearing process will be full of pain. Consider the fact that on their trek to Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph would have likely passed one of the premier sacred sites of that day, the tomb of Rachel. Rachel was the wife of Jacob, whose name is also Israel, and is one of the main patriarchs of the people of God. And Rachel longed for children, only to literally die while giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. Death was not uncommon amidst birth for the child or for the mother. So I ask again, Isn't it striking? Isn't it odd? Isn't it strangely familiar that the redemption of the world would not be brought by public policy or a clash of world leaders, but initiated through birth? Is there anything more natural to a woman's body than birth? And is there anything more traumatic to a woman's body than birth? There were various occurrences throughout the scripture that God appears in supernatural and miraculous ways. We read about them in the Old Testament, but the way he chooses to show up in the world is the most familiar one, probably to our detriment We are constantly asking God for miracles and there are times where he does miraculous things. But the majority of the time that we are asking for the miraculous, he is inviting us over to the familiar. Both in his life and in his death, God chooses to play by the rules. And then his audience, the first people to hear the announcement of God's arrival and the first to witness the king receiving nursing from his mother was not the emperor or the priests. It was sheepherders, shepherds. It's our equivalent to fast food workers. They keep the economy going, but society does not consider their occupation glorious. What was the announcement? I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah the Lord. That line is punched with meaning, and the meaning I want to highlight, and I sense the meaning the shepherds might have heard, is for you. The good news, filled with great joy, wrapped up in cloth, is for you. For those whose lives are filled with mundanity. For you, the common father out with his son, just teaching him the ropes of herding cattle. For you, the woman wrestling if she has done anything significant with her life. For you, the struggling parent who can't seem to get it right. For you, the one who just last night stared at porn for 20 minutes. For you, the one who just lost his temper. For you, the one who can't take back what they said. For you, the one who hasn't picked up a Bible in a year. For you, who experiences waves of depression and loneliness. God was not born to a select few. His birth was for you. The people who got a first look at the Messiah, who got to appear behind the curtain, were common people. They were familiar people. And it was in their familiarity, in their commonness, that God reveals something significant. Mary is insignificant and familiar. Joseph is insignificant and common. Unless, of course, they're not. I, and let me just speak both as a pastor and as a person for a moment. I am constantly tempted to think, is my life counting for something? I am a young pastor in a small church, married a couple kids. I don't feel like I'm doing something significant, and I know I'm not doing something large. And Advent is on the calendar as a glaring reminder that the seemingly small events and feelings of insignificance in your life and mine are the hallways that God roams. And I don't say that to garner any sympathy from you. I just tell you that is a fear of mine. Should I be doing something more, something else? Would God be more honored if I was in a more extraordinary church or perhaps playing a different role in a different church? And that fear is met by Advent. The arrival of God in familiar, insignificant circumstances. Perhaps, 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 this ordinary life in this ordinary church, in this little family, in our little house, on our little street, are exactly the types of places God appears. See, Advent is a paradox. It is a profoundly holy season that has been converted into one giant commercial. It marks the turning point in human history, and yet only a few even witnessed it firsthand. It makes the claim that the king of the universe has arrived, and yet that king was born to poor parents in a low-income environment in the middle of the night. Everything about the king surprises us because it meets us where we are at, not where we want to be. So many of us have beautiful aspirations for a life that we are not currently living. At a time and in a place where we are not content. or more at peace, richer, married, retired. Maybe a place where our job doesn't stink or where our friendships aren't strained or where our kids are autonomous or where our marriage is less rocky. Maybe we want to move but can't figure out the means or the destination. Or maybe you're just facing the point in your life where you are looking reality in the face and saying, this is my life and feeling very disillusioned. And for whatever reason... We have bought into the lie that God was born into a different world. Into that idealized world that we keep dreaming about but never shows up. He was, in fact, not. He was born into our world. Into a world where an earthly king would slaughter innocent children because his throne was threatened. He was born into the world of conflict-ridden marriages and prodigal kids. He was born into the world of economic upheaval and objectification of image bearers. Where greed was the currency, no matter the occupation, God was born to us. The story seems unbelievable, partially because we can't believe that God would stoop so low. If it's true that God came to earth through the womb of a teenage virgin... In non ideal conditions and burped, coughed, chewed, laughed, cried. It is a story like no other. If true, we don't need to wonder whether what happens on this tennis ball of a planet matters. Little wonder a choir of angels broke out in spontaneous song, disturbing not only a few shepherds but the entire universe. God interrupting time and space to take on skin and bone shakes the earth. Frederick Frederick Buechner has this line those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of us. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least auspicious of all events, this birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound but that holiness can be present there too. Which means, at the fast food restaurant God can be met. And at the dinner table on a run-of-the-mill Tuesday evening, God can be met. And in the places where you have no hope and no expectation that God would ever stoop so low and come so far as to meet you, there God can be met. Where God seems most hidden and powerless, he reveals himself most powerfully. The good news of Advent is that God is not afraid to show up in unlikely unseen and forgotten places we might even say that he prefers them if he can show up in the dead of night surrounded by an audience of farm animals and their owners he will meet you where you are he is just as likely to show up at 1600 pennsylvania avenue and the megachurch as he is at the corner of whittle springs and fairmont at the dominos on broadway under the bridge downtown in the classroom at fulton Nothing about God's arrival makes us believe he's only found in far off places and everything about his arrival makes it very believable that he will show up tomorrow in the places you thought he had ridden off. And that is great news for you and that is great news for your neighbor and your coworker and your child and your friend. God doesn't go to the places that we deem significant. His entrance makes it all significant. So the arms of a mother become holy when holding a child. And the carpentry shop becomes holy when mentoring your son. And the neighborhood gathering becomes holy when hosting the block party. The entrance of God is proof that the unlikely environments and the unlikely people become thin places for us to encounter Him head on. It's what we all want, to come face to face with the living God. And that is adamant that we could touch His face and experience his invitation because of the incarnation. There are no such things as insignificant people. Advent interrupts all our agendas, blows up our preconceived notions because God has come to dwell with common folks. Which brings us to the practice, the practice of receiving. See, God needed nothing upon entering our world, and he took on needing everything. On a cold night in an obscure place, God did not show up in blinding glory, but in helpless vulnerability, and he allowed us the one thing that we have always wanted and yet still struggle to grasp. In coming as he did, he allowed us to get close to him. Because before Jesus performed miracles, taught crowds, and discipled his followers, he was born an infant. He was born a newborn. Why? Because to receive the kingdom is to become like a child. So much of childhood is receiving. Every hobby is a new experience. Every friend is a new revelation. The kingdom is not for grown-up adults. It is for those who are children at heart, who will sit at the manger and long for Jesus to be the center of it all and continues to be amazed by it. We adults are typically associated with self-sufficiency. Giving validates me. It makes me feel important. It gives me reason. Walking by the Salvation Army buckets this week as I strolled into Kroger the other day, I just had this blinding realization. It is easier for me to drop something in this bucket than it would ever be to be on the receiving end of that bucket. And that is exactly the message of Advent. God temporarily suspended natural laws to break into our world, superseded our abilities and competencies, and undercuts them by showing us a helpless child. Oscar Romero has this poem. It says, No one can celebrate a genuine Christmas without truly being poor. The self-sufficient, the proud, those who, because they have everything, look down on others. Those who have no need even of God, for there will be no Christmas. Only the poor and the hungry, those who need someone to come on their behalf, will have that someone. That someone is God. Emmanuel, God with us. Without poverty of spirit, there can be no abundance of God. Most of us associate Christmas with gifts, and that means that those of us who have resources are expected to give, and perhaps there is a holy expectation there. But the hidden invitation is actually to receive first. Giving proves my worth. Giving contributes to how much I can do. In some ways, giving is about me, and it's about how I am self-sufficient enough to give to those who aren't selfish sufficient. But look at the announcement of God into the world. The shepherds did not do anything. They merely received the news. The magi did not do anything except seek out the news. Simeon and Anna did not do anything except thank God for the news. The news that God has arrived to redeem his people and build his kingdom. We do not build the kingdom. The king does. We receive it. And the king has arrived, and with it his kingdom of holiness and justice, of purity and peace, of wholeness and life and contentment. So what do we do this Christmas season? What is the invitation for us? It's to echo the hymn and to embody the hymn, O little town of Bethlehem. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. What might it mean for you to receive and that be the initial first invitation before you contribute? I'm going to have Caitlin come up and just lead us in an acapella version of the last two stanzas of that hymn. Father, just as the shepherds received your Son in the first coming, we receive your Spirit even now in preparation for your second coming. There is an, an eagerness and a longing that we do desire you a hunger. And yet sometimes we desire you in the most... Bizarre of places when you show up in the most familiar ones. So even over the next three to four weeks, would you meet us? And would you open our eyes and give us eyes to see you in the mundane, in the familiar, in the common places, in where we feel like scandal has marked our lives? Would you remind us that there is Nowhere that you don't go where there isn't scandal. And you were born into a line of scandal. And you come for people who are scandalized by sin, who are looking for a rescuer. And so we receive being rescued. And we receive that news with great joy. And in the power and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you all stand as we close in worship?
1: Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please
0: visit us online at mosaicnox.org.